I am all in a sea of wonders. I doubt, I fear, I think strange things, which I dare not confess to my own soul. We'll see about these confessions. Here on Let's Read Something Gay Today, we're reading Dracula. While he has many novels and short stories under his belt, Abraham Bram Stoker is largely known for having written the gothic horror novel Dracula. Dracula is an epistolary novel about Count Dracula's attempt to move from Transylvania to England and his struggle against the group led by Professor Abraham Van Helsing due to his desire to turn others into vampires. Right off the bat, why is one of the main protagonist's names also Bram's full first name? We'll leave that one alone for now, but it is something to keep in mind. Dracula as a story was popular when it was first published in 1897 and has never gone out of print since its original 3000 print run, and it continues to draw attention to this day, with new film adaptations popping up every few years. Many vampire stories either pay homage or take inspiration from the book's eponymous vampire. Bram Stoker had written one fictional novel, The Snake's Pass, and a handbook, The Duties of Clerks of Petty Sessions in Ireland, before Dracula, but his main career through the course of his life was the acting manager at the Lyceum Theatre, London, and often the right-hand man of actor Sir Henry Irving. Busy guy! While fulfilling his regular day-to-day job duties, Stoker wrote pretty prolifically, with his works ranging from essays to the public forum addressing different social issues in Victorian England, to short stories, to biographies, and maybe we'll talk about his other works at length in another episode, but for today we'll just be focusing mainly on Dracula. So where in Stoker's brain did his most successful story come from? Just like the form the book is written in, it appears from all different places. Stoker's interest in the macabre and gothic horror seems to have been a lifelong interest. While he was more of a man's man in activity, having been involved in rugby, walking races, gymnasium, slingshot, high jump, trapeze, weightlifting, and rowing in college, as well as being in the historical society and philosophical society, Stoker's beginnings were pretty sickly. As a child, Stoker was frequently ill and bedridden with an unknown sickness until the age of about seven, and his mother would often tell him stories, a lot of the times horror stories. Before Dracula, Stoker wrote shorter pieces in a range of genres including horror, and the fiction book he wrote before Dracula, The Snake's Pass, was actually a crime fantasy novel. Despite Dracula being the main work Stoker is known for, he dabbled in romance, fantasy, and several other genres of fiction in his works. For Dracula, Stoker reportedly had come up with parts of the story throughout the 1890s and kept extensive notes for ideas he had surrounding the plot and characters. Going along with his interest in history, a lot of his notes and sources of inspiration were based in folklore, including Transylvanian folklore, where the first part of the novel takes place, when the young Jonathan Harker goes to visit Count Dracula in his original home. The location of Whitby in England itself, where most of the novel takes place, is even inspiration Stoker took from a trip there in 1890. While it's a pretty common belief that Count Dracula, the main antagonist of Dracula, was inspired heavily by Vlad the Impaler, a ruler known for his cruelty, this isn't entirely the case. While Vlad Dracula shares a name and a home in common with the fictional Count Dracula, it appears that Stoker drew inspiration from many places to form the character, including evidence to that years-long research of vampire folklore, the tales told to him by his mother, 
and even the people in his real life. One such source of inspiration was most likely Sir Henry Irving. Stoker caught the attention of the actor after moving from Ireland to Britain and working as a theater critic. After moving to London and marrying Florence Balcombe, Stoker became the acting manager of the Lyceum Theater and assistant to Irving. As historian Lewis S. Warren puts it, Stoker's numerous depictions of Irving correspond so closely to his rendering of the fictional count that contemporaries commented on the resemblance. Irving, though Stoker idolized him, was said to be manipulative, and it was possible, in theory, that Stoker may have internalized darker opinions on Irving in Dracula as a horror figure. There's a lot of speculation around Stoker's personal relationship with Irving, a lot of it coming from one of Stoker's other novels, Personal Reminiscences of Sir Henry Irving, which is a novel that serves both as a biography of Irving from Stoker's perspective and as somewhat of a memoir, something that Stoker never officially wrote. From this work, there is a lot of speculation surrounding Stoker and homosocial desire. Homosociality, popularized by Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, is a term used most often to depict platonic bonds in same-sex relationships, and in this case highlights the idea of bonds between men. Homosocial desire, in this case, is the expression of that want to associate with members of the same sex, while also distancing oneself from the idea of homosexual desire, and comes up a lot when discussing love triangles, and the way that they allow for men to act toward one another more passionately than they would be able to if they weren't vying for the affection of a woman. In Personal Reminiscences, Stoker's very first encounter with Irving is a good example of the line between homosocial behavior and homosexual behavior, and how it is perceived by different audiences. During this encounter, Stoker talks about how moved he was by Irving's recital of the poem The Dream of Eugene Aram, the Murderer. In it, Stoker describes himself as bursting into a fit of hysterics at the end of the poem because it was just that profound of a performance. In this same section, Stoker defends himself, stating that he is no hysterics hysterical subject. Without a love triangle present, we can see the same pattern arise, replacing a woman with Irving's performance. Stoker reacting in such a way to Irving himself would have been seen as odd, but in the context that Irving was performing and meant to draw a reaction from anyone watching, it gave Stoker the freedom to be more passionate about the performance than he could ever have been without it. While at the time it may have also been a convincing statement to describe himself as a non-hysterical person, as he goes on to talk about how typically strong he is, many future biographers would go on to look at this section as a clear example of Stoker covering up some kind of attraction or adoration not just for the words Irving spoke, but to Irving himself. When Stoker depicts himself as this strong man who doesn't usually become hysterical, it makes him seem like an unreliable narrator in his own life, especially considering that his reference to hysteria at the time would have had strong connotations to the supposed illness of the same name, which was believed to largely only affect women, or particularly impressionable or effeminate men. In fact, as many times as Stoker refers to himself as strong or manly, he refers to himself in very traditionally feminine ways. While referencing hysteria or the idea that his relationship with Irving unmanned him, in his own words, may just be coincidental, it is also worth mentioning that Stoker himself believed in the idea of sexual inversion at the same time that in his later life he would openly write in favor of imprisoning gay authors. Sexual inversion is a pretty outdated term referring to homosexuality, but it refers to homosexuality sexual attraction not as that, but as some sort of latent heterosexuality based on the idea that those who experience same-sex attraction were simply born with the soul of a member of the opposite sex when viewing gender as a binary. Additionally, in his own journals from August 5th, 1871, Stoker refers to himself as having a woman's heart and the wishes of a lonely child. He also references this in a letter to Walt Whitman, stating that he is a strong, healthy man with a woman's eyes and a child's wishes. In that context, 
context, it may be possible that Stoker's references to himself in personal reminiscences were intentional, or at the very least referencing something he believed unconsciously. Through examples such as the first encounter with Irving, some believe that Irving was the source of sexual attraction for Stoker, which then translates to the fictional Count Dracula if some of Stoker's inspiration was taken from the actor. Dracula plays the role of a seducer in his plans to immigrate to Britain, managing to overcome Lucy Westenra and feed from her to withdraw strength, while also having a strong hold over R.M. Renfield, who acts as his fanatical servant. Side note, the movie Renfield starring Nicholas Holt and Nicholas Cage hasn't come out yet at the time that I'm recording this. I am so excited, not because I necessarily think it's going to be a good movie, but because I think it's going to be pretty entertaining. Anyways, Dracula's one charismatic guy, despite his shortcomings. Jonathan Harker's opinion of him, as told through letters to Mina, is that the Count is a bit unkempt and unsettling, and smells pretty horrific at close range, but still finds himself gazing hypnotically at the Count's face during an attempt to thwart him, unable to harm him. In his own words, There was no lethal weapon on hand, but I seized a shovel which the workmen had been using to fill the cases, and lifting it high, struck with the edge downward at that hateful face. But as I did so, the head turned and his eyes fell upon me with all their blaze of basilisk horror. The sight seemed to paralyze me, and the shovel turned in my hand and glanced from the face, merely making a deep gash above the forehead. Just the day before, Jonathan was in front of this coffin, tempted to search for the key to escape that he was sure was on Dracula's person, and then in this instance, when he finally musters the courage to search for the key, Dracula has either already moved it to a different location or never had it on him to begin with. Instead, all Jonathan can do is gaze in horror, attempt one last stand as he believes he will be dead the following day, and ultimately fail due to his inability to go against Dracula. The job of an actor is to entertain, but also to enrapture the audience in the scenes and characters that they're portraying. So to say that Sir Henry Irving, one of the most popular actors in the world at the time, could hold a crowd is probably a bit of an understatement. However, the ability to hold attention can be a double-edged sword. Irving was regarded by many as incredibly manipulative and fickle, sometimes actively pitting people against each other, just for his own fun. At the same time, Irving was a businessman, and a pretty damn good one. When he started his profession, acting as a calling was not at its peak in popularity or respect. However, in the 40 or so years he'd spent acting and carefully managing the Lyceum, he had become world-renowned. He was the first actor to be knighted, and was so revered that when he died and his body was moved through the streets to be prepared for burial, people came and lined the streets in perfect silence to mourn him. He was said to have cleverly paid court to friendly critics, and frequently hosted exclusive backstage dinner parties with other celebrities, and this showmanship and mystique afforded him a grand reputation. Stoker, who helped orchestrate these events, would have seen every side of Irving through the course of their professional and personal relationship, and while it's clear he also became wrapped up in the apparent glamour of Irving's life, he wasn't likely to have just missed all the bad days. In that same scene, the way Dracula is described, having aged down and become younger looking than he was when Jonathan first met him, is similar to Irving. Before, with the great bushy white mustache, the resemblance is to a different contemporary of Stoker's, but the new description, there lay the Count, but looking as if his youth had been half renewed, for the white hair and mustache were changed to dark iron gray. The cheeks were fuller, and the white skin seemed ruby red underneath. The mouth was redder than ever. Separate from Dracula's initial description, as he appears to get younger due to his feeding on people, his description begins to vaguely resemble Irving. Stoker's contemporaries noticed this and commented on it at the time. 
There is also much speculation surrounding whether Irving was in a relationship with actress Ellen Terry, who played a great deal of the counterparts in Irving's own leading roles. She remarked at a later point in her life that of course they had been in love, but there is enough lack of evidence that it's possible this wasn't quite true. If that relationship had been something Stoker was privy to, and if he did idolize Irving to the point of love and adoration, that would have probably been a sore spot in their working relationship, and it would have been one-sided and secretly held by Stoker. For any subconscious aggression toward Irving to come out in his writing wouldn't be very surprising. Walt Whitman was also a potential source of inspiration for Dracula. At the very least, his appearance as an older man with a huge white mustache physically resembles Jonathan Harker's initial account of Dracula. Whitman was an American poet that Stoker held a long friendship with, who we will probably talk about in detail in a future episode, but for context in relation to Stoker, it is known that he had a lover in Peter Doyle and was most likely either bisexual or gay. One of his main known works, Leaves of Grass, features a section of poetry with some apparent references to gay relationships. Stoker and Whitman often wrote letters to one another, Stoker being a massive fan of Whitman's, and they met three times, where Stoker described Whitman as all that I had ever dreamed of or wished for. They kept up a correspondence over many years, and one letter from Stoker to Whitman is often regarded as a love letter. This letter was written by Stoker to Whitman before they knew one another, and though written by Stoker in 1872, the letter wasn't sent to Whitman until Valentine's Day of 1876, coupled with a new letter to preface the original. In the preface, Stoker writes, Four years ago, I wrote the enclosed draft of a letter which I intended to copy out and send to you. It has lain on my desk since then, when I heard that you were addressed as Mr. Whitman. It speaks for itself and needs no comment. It is truly what I wanted to say as that light is light. The four years which have elapsed have made me love your work fourfold, and I can truly say I have ever spoken as your friend. I only hope we may sometime meet and I shall be able to perhaps say what I cannot write. The original letter does speak for itself. In it, Stoker writes, A man who is certain of his own strength might try to encourage himself a piece of bravo, but a man who can write, as you have written, the most candid words that ever fell from the lips of a mortal man, a man whose candor Rousseau's confessions is reticence, can have no fear for his own strength. If I were before your face, I would like to shake hands with you, for I feel that I would like you. I would like to call you comrade and to talk to you as men who are not poets do not often talk. I think that at first a man would be ashamed, for a man cannot in a moment break the habit of comparative reticence that has become second nature to him. But I know I would not long be ashamed to be natural before you. You are a true man, and I would like to be one myself, and so I would be toward you as a brother and as a pupil to his master. In this age, no man becomes worthy of the name without effort. You have shaken off the shackles and your wings are free. I have the shackles on my shoulders still, but I have no wings. He continues, I have been more candid with you, have said more about myself to you than I have said to anyone before. And finally, he ends his letter, how sweet a thing it is for a strong, healthy man with a woman's eye and a child's wishes to feel that he can speak to a man who can be, if he wishes, father and brother and wife to his soul. I don't think you will laugh, Walt Whitman, nor despise me, but at all events, I thank you for all the love and sympathy you have given me in common with my kind. Bram Stoker. In Whitman's immediate response, he thanks Stoker for his affectionate letter, and it is indeed affectionate. 
both in saying that men who aren't poets have a different way of talking, and in bluntly referring to the audience or subjects of Whitman's writing as my kind, Stoker demonstrates he believes there is something about him, something he remarks is treated with shame, that is unlike most other men. Aside from that, the reference in the letter to Comrade is most likely a reference to the cluster of poems Whitman wrote that depicts, quote, the manly love of comrades. Those are the gay poems, and Stoker seems to refer to them in his letter. He is also truthful in the idea that he's been more candid with Whitman than most other people. This letter was written when Stoker was 28 and before he married, but he would spend a lot of time and energy deliberately redacting names and information from his own writing and replacing them with words such as reticence, shame, and degeneracy in a way that makes up a particular pattern referencing homosexual authors or desires. Well, some of these words he used to replace other phrases we can probably decode pretty confidently, there is no doubt that Stoker's letter to Whitman was one of openness that stood out amongst a pattern of secrecy in Stoker's life. In this time, throughout the late 1800s, Stoker spoke often and fondly about his own relationship with openness and secrecy. As Talia Schaefer puts it in A Wild Desire Took Me, the homoerotic history of Dracula, if it is difficult for Stoker to break his secrecy, it is also a great pleasure. He caresses his secrecy in order to emphasize the enjoyment of penetrating it. On top of this, the themes of Whitman's writing which Stoker was a huge admirer of, are present in Dracula. The character Dracula speaks similarly to Whitman's writing style. As Dennis Perry writes in Whitman's influence on Stoker's Dracula, Dracula is the only character who speaks with a sense of rhythm, parallelism, and balance that is characteristic of Whitman. Undoubtedly, Stoker was also affected by the pervasive death imagery throughout Whitman's poetry, making a connecting link between the undead vampire and the Whitman who could describe himself as a shroud who could wrap a body and lie in the coffin. So while it's perhaps not a conscious decision, Stoker takes some inspiration from his love of Whitman's writing and the physical resemblance, which, while perhaps slight, is there. The last person Dracula may be based on is Oscar Wilde, but we'll actually be dedicating another episode to that can of worms. So, with some of the possible inspiration in two of the men Stoker admired and perhaps loved, let's take a look at the story. Keeping in mind that in the real world around Stoker, being gay was seen as a predatory act, seeking to corrupt other people into indulging a base desire, and the common stereotypes of what a gay person might behave like outside of that context were relatively new and undefined. Dracula as a character matches that predatory idea pretty closely. His goal for the novel appears to be to move to a new land in search of fresh victims to corrupt, drain of life, and eventually turn in some cases. He has a fanatic servant in Renfield who is defined as insane in the story, and when he elects to use Lucy as his main pull of control and life force, it seems implied that it's because she's already sexually deviant by conservative standards, having started the book courting three men at once. I'll also stop here and just add that a lot of these tropes potentially also come from a prejudice against Eastern Europeans, which I didn't want to ignore. This starts early with Jonathan describing the locals in his travel in Transylvania as strange and barbaric in the first few chapters of the novel, and the idea behind Dracula as an Eastern European smuggling himself to the Western England to drain others of life. The taking of soil from his homeland to sleep in can be read as a sort of refusal to assimilate, not to mention that the conceit of vampirism, stealing blood for life force, and the connection to Eastern Europe has at least some connection to the accusation of blood libel. 
The xenophobic prejudice potential of Dracula is definitely there, and the likelihood at this point in time where real vampires were becoming less of a true worry and people's minds were turning to what they perceived as real threats to their lives, that being marginalized people and many outsiders to Victorian England, is also something to keep in mind when we're looking at Dracula as a potential parallel to the perceived monstrosity of homosexuality. That monstrosity can be applied to several of the prejudices evident in Stoker and his contemporaries. Stoker himself was in favor of censorship in Europe and at one time supported the idea of imprisoning gay authors. Whether he knew about his hero, Walt Whitman's gay lover, while vocalizing that support is kind of unknown. But in looking at Dracula, we can see in some instances that the tactics Count Dracula deploys to control people or drain them of life force can be read as inherently sexual. First, when Jonathan is exploring the castle in the hopes of finding a way to escape, he comes across three women he doesn't know are also vampires. When he is accosted by them, he describes, There was something about them that made me uneasy, some longing, and at the same time some deadly fear. I felt in my heart a wicked, burning desire that they would kiss me with those red lips. And he continues, The fair girl went on her knees and bent over me, fairly gloating. There was a deliberate voluptuousness, which was both thrilling and repulsive, and as she arched her neck, she actually licked her lips like an animal, till I could see in the moonlight the moisture shining on the scarlet lips, on the red tongue as it lapped the white, sharp teeth. I could feel the soft, shivering touch of the lips on the super-sensitive skin of my throat, and the hard dents of two sharp teeth just touching and pausing there. I closed my eyes in languorous ecstasy and waited. Here, we can see that whatever stupor vampires are able to put humans into to feed also has the byproduct of being pleasurable to the human. Jonathan in this moment ends up not only accepting what is happening to him, but actively wanting for it in some kind of anticipation. At the same time, he's terrified and repulsed by these women, perhaps sensing that something about them is inherently wrong. He finds himself, in his own words, in a type of ecstasy at the touch of one of them. The way he focuses on their lips, on their voluptuousness, tells us that in this moment, something is compelling him to desire their touch, while at the same time the rational part of his brain indicates danger. Though Dracula never directly feeds from Jonathan or any of the men in the story that we see, some of this feeling still carries over. Going back to the passage where Jonathan is unable to truly harm Dracula, we can see that this power to manipulate the thoughts and feelings of a victim without even speaking is also one that he possesses. Jonathan also, at times, fixates on how red Dracula's lips are. In addition, while Dracula doesn't directly feed from any of the men that later form the group to hunt him down, he does get their blood. Looking back to Lucy, who is not the only victim of Dracula, but is the main person affected by his control, she is not only a person seduced on some level by the Count, she is also a conduit for him to consume the blood of men. In chapter 10, when Dr. John Seward and Dr. Van Helsing go to Lucy to determine what it is she needs to recover from her sudden illness, Van Helsing recognizes what she needs immediately. There is not time to be lost. She will die for sheer want of blood to keep the heart's action as it should be. There must be a transfusion of blood at once. Is it you or me? Van Helsing has dealt with vampires before and immediately recognizes Lucy's condition as a sort of vampire-induced anemia. Seward volunteers to give blood, but Arthur, the man Lucy ended up choosing in her courting, shows up upon receiving the letter sent by Seward to update him. Once Arthur arrives, it is him who gives the first transfusion. And let's talk here a little bit again about homosocial desire. According to theories about homosocial desire, the objectifying of the woman in love triangles allows men to express passion toward one another indirectly and in socially acceptable ways. 
While Dracula isn't exactly in a love triangle with Arthur and Lucy, the act of taking Arthur's blood through Lucy once this transfusion occurs can serve as a similar stand-in. Lucy starts as being the important one to Dracula's continued survival, but then her body simply becomes the method through which Dracula can continue to feed while he actually feeds on the blood of other men. After Arthur's transfusion, Seward also gives a transfusion to Lucy in the hopes of her healing, then Van Helsing, then Quincy Morris. Through this method, Dracula continues to be sustained while Lucy continues to wither, all while the men around her struggle to find a solution. Many of the other illusions surrounding Dracula as an evil queer figure are a bit Freudian. First, his fangs. The act of feeding from a human or turning a human involves biting them, the penetration of teeth into another person. The same goes for the method Van Helsing uses to thwart Dracula. The impaling with a wooden stake goes doubly so for both the undoing and dominating of a man. This can be tied back into that homosocial desire and that love triangle where we see the use of Lucy is what enables them to act so passionately as to kill a person with the stake. When our heroes triumph over Dracula, they have used used his own weaknesses as a monster against him. Even the smell of rot and excrement in Dracula's ancestral soil where he sleeps can be seen as a link to homosexuality when we consider that at the same time Dracula was being written, Oscar Wilde's trial for gross indecency featured a piece of supposed evidence in the recounting of stains on his bedsheets from sleeping with another man. Even Dracula's lifestyle needing to take place in darkness is a potential parallel. In chapter 7, Mina Harker pastes an article in her journal marking the arrival of the ship the Demeter, and a terrible storm. The article reads, The Coast Guard on duty at once made report, and one old fisherman, who for more than half a century has kept watch on weather signs from the East Cliff, foretold in an emphatic manner the coming of a sudden storm. The Demeter itself is the ship Dracula had smuggled himself on to travel to England, and the storm arriving with it symbolically foreshadows his arrival as a dark force in Whitby. This is, of course, done by Dracula himself to orchestrate a smooth exit from the ship, implying he can control the weather to some degree, but it also allows us to see the conditions where Dracula thrives. There is a calm before the storm where the sun dips into the far-off clouds and creates a beautiful image that apparently many people in Whitby stop to gawk at, and some painters even immortalize, showing that there is a beauty even in the impending doom. But then, the storm begins. The waves become uncontrollable and restless, the already darkened skies double down and the Demeter runs aground, leaving an opportunity for Dracula to escape as a dog without having to cross moving water. The darkness itself was a somewhat necessary part of the gay lifestyle at this time due to its illegality. If someone wanted to meet up with a partner of the same gender, they often had to do so in secrecy, and the cover of darkness was the best opportunity to slip in and out of someone's home unseen by neighbors or prying eyes. The idea that Dracula is so limited in several ways, where he can't cross moving water, he's immobile during the day, and he has to carry out all of his plans at night or in darkness is a parallel to this need for secrecy in Victorian England. Dracula's habits of necessity for survival mirror the survival of gay people through the secrecy to protect themselves. The arrival of Dracula under cover of darkness is also the first time we see evidence that he is affecting Lucy. The night the ship runs aground, Mina Harker remarks in her journal, Strangely enough, Lucy did not wake, but she got up twice and dressed herself. Fortunately, each time I awoke in time and managed to undress her without waking her and got her back into bed. Lucy eventually sleepwalks out of the house, and this is where she has her first real encounter with Dracula. 
But this disturbance starting when he arrives under the cover of darkness also shows the way that for Dracula's plans to work, his darkness has to affect other people. This also betrays the idea of unconscious desire when dealing with Dracula. We see this come up several times where Lucy is most vulnerable to Dracula in her sleep because her unconscious desire to follow his influence can be acted on when she is not actively trying to resist. We see this in her sleepwalking, but also later on when Van Helsing is prescribing vampire wards to keep Dracula at bay. In chapter 12, when Lucy is at her worst before dying, she's in the process of being turned into the undead. Her fangs have started coming in and becoming noticeable, and her unconscious mind is affecting her. As Seward writes in his diary, it struck me as curious that the moment she became conscious, she pressed the garlic flowers close to herself. It was certainly odd that whenever she got into that lethargic state with the stertorous breathing, she put the flowers from her, but when she waked, she clutched them close. This comes at a point where Lucy is right on the brink of death and has lost her mother, one of the main tethers for her to remain human and alive. On top of the physical changes to her teeth and her complexion becoming sicklier and paler, Lucy finds herself with yet more unconscious desires. While conscious she wants to be protected and hold the garlic flowers provided by Van Helsing close to her to ward off this evil, whenever she falls asleep or unconscious, she immediately pushes those same flowers away from her to more easily welcome Dracula back. In this state, she is also said to appear stronger when asleep, despite somewhat labored breathing, so it appears as though when her connection to Dracula is strongest while she is unconscious, she is also becoming stronger at this stage of turning. These unconscious desires to hasten that turning and die so that she can come back back in a few days later undead, also mirror the ideas behind homosexuality in that a lot of gay people will describe their coming out as inevitable. Despite social taboo or other restrictions like the shame from family, which can cause queer people to remain in the closet even after they know themselves, that desire to love and be loved by who they want still remains, and this desire to be their true selves often prevails over the desire not to be shamed or stigmatized. In Bram Stoker's article, The Censorship of Fiction, he discussed the ideas of restraint and reticence, or holding off from base desires in relation to writing fiction. Reticence is one of Stoker's favorite attributes to apply to anything. He uses it in the context of Irving, who is not really known for his reticence. He uses it in place of authors he wishes to censor, thereby censoring their names and works just with this word. Bram speaks of restraint and reticence in writing and ties it into writing depicting gay relationships. When Bram speaks of restraint and reticence in writing and ties it into writing depicting gay relationships, he compares uncensored fiction to unregulated drugs, writing, but if the growing custom continues of publishing as literary works, stage plays, forbidden for that purpose by the censor, the public may, will, end by reading them in the hope of finding offensive matter. They will bring to the study for evil motives and ardor denied for purposes of good. Stoker argues that if censorship is not enacted to keep what he calls decadent writing from the public, that they will inevitably start to seek it out and want it more than good reticent writing. Stoker's belief seems to be that writers and public figures can simply put into the minds of people things that they had never had an urge to do and turn them into heathens. Personally, from this argument that the public can't be trusted with offensive material lest they become corrupted and succumb to base desires speaks more to Stoker's own mind than the mind of the public. If he believes that anyone can simply be convinced to do something they have no interest in simply by the draw of a good book, it seems to me that he is in denial about what his interests are. However, we can see the inkling of the idea of unconscious desire here and Stoker's fixation on it. When we see Lucy succumbing to the evil of Dracula, we can also see where Stoker 
has the idea that someone can be turned evil, and while they consciously want not to be, unconsciously they would succumb to it eventually if exposed for too long. So, Dracula being queer-coded as a villain can be seen in both the modern context where we know the history of queer representation exists within the confines of strict villainy or tragic inevitability for a very long time in media, but also in the context of Victorian England where queer people were viewed as inherently predatory. At that time, the ideas of the stereotypically gay personality were really just starting, romantic friendships were just falling out of popularity, and the lines were more blurred socially because people were largely encouraged to stick to traditionally gendered activities. Where we see encouragement to avoid these base desires and immoral behaviors as a public talking point, the struggle between conscious social effort and unconscious desire, and the length of forbidden taboo or attraction to horror, we can see how Dracula fits right into that mold. For all his monstrous dressing and theatrics, maybe Dracula was just the monster in Stoker's closet all along. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts, and feel free to get at us on Twitter or Instagram at LRSGTPod. Thanks! Thanks!